Gracious and loving God, we ask your blessing upon us as we enter into Holy Week to contemplate the great and mighty acts of our Lord Jesus Christ in the way that you have rescued us from sin and death. As we study Exodus 12 today, we pray that we would always be mindful of the true <laughs> deliverance you work in our lives and that we would see ourselves reflected back to us in this story and see your goodness present and active in our life even today. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the 10th of this month, they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. If a household is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. The lamb shall be divided in proportion to the number of people who eat of it. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the lamb that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted over the fire with its head, legs, and inner organs. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it hurriedly. It is the Passover of the Lord, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will stri strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a day of remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall hold a solemn assembly. And on the seventh day, a solemn assembly. No work shall be done on those days. Only what everyone must eat, that alone may be prepared by you. You shall observe the festival of unleavened bread, for on this very day, I brought your companies out of the land of Egypt. You shall observe this day throughout your generations as a perpetual ordinance. In the first month, from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day, you shall eat unleavened bread. For seven days, no leaven shall be found in your houses. For whoever eats what is leavened shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether an alien or a native of the land. 
You shall eat nothing leavened, and all your settlements you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go, select lambs for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood in the basin. None of you shall go outside the door of your house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike down the Egyptians. When he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over that door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you down. You shall observe this right as a perpetual ordinance for you and your children. When you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this observance. And when your children ask you, what do you mean by this observance? You shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, for he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed down and worshiped. The Israelites went and did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud cry in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron in the night and said, Rise up, go away from my people, both you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord, as you said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you said, and be gone, and bring a blessing on me too. The Egyptians urged the people to hasten their departure from the land, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls wrapped up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The Israelites had done as Moses told them. They had asked the Egyptians for jewelry of silver and gold and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. And so they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. A mixed crowd also went up with them, and livestock in great numbers, both flocks and herds. They baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt. It was not leavened, because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the Israelites had lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the companies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. That was for the Lord a night of vigil to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That same night is a vigil to be kept for the Lord by all the Israelites throughout their generations. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance for the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but any slave who has been purchased may eat of it after he has been circumcised. No bound or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house, and you shall not take any of the animal outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. The whole congregation of Israel shall celebrate it. 
If an alien who resides with you wants to celebrate the Passover to the Lord, all his males shall be circumcised. Then he may draw near to celebrate it. He shall be regarded as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the alien who resides among you. All the Israelites did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. That very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, company by company. Evie, thank you for that beautiful reading of Exodus 12. So to dive in with just a few notes, chapter 12 begins with the 10th plague or on the verge of the 10th plague. So for those who have been part of this study, you'll notice that we skipped Exodus 8 through 11, which describes the next seven plagues that God sent upon Egypt. And so chapter eight begins with the second plague, which is the infestation of frogs. And I'm sad we missed that chapter because one of my five, my favorite lines in scripture is whenever uh, Moses asked Pharaoh when he should make this plague end and intercede before the Lord so that the frogs um, stop overwhelming him. And, and Pharaoh says tomorrow, uh, as opposed to right now. And I love that because part of what's being revealed is the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and that he's still lukewarm. He still wants another day with the frogs, even if that means refusing to acknowledge the lordship and superiority of Yahweh. And uh, so whenever Paul later picks up on that and says things like, now is the acceptable time, you can imagine him having the idea of a stubborn pharaoh who would rather be attacked by frogs than admit defeat. Um, so that's the plague of the frogs, always my favorite plague. Chapter nine are about plagues uh, three and four, which is a swarm of gnats. Uh, and uh, also flies. Uh, the fifth plague uh, is about pestilence that kills the livestock. The sixth plague is around a painful skin disease that they all get. And then, of course, we have a swarm of locusts, and we have darkness that covers the land. Uh, all of that has happened since we studied Exodus chapter 7. And so now we're getting close to the end. And it begins with the Lord telling Moses and Aaron that this month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month. And so while they are still on Egyptian soil, God tells the people that this event of their liberation is to be the foundational act that constitutes their identity. Very similar to Sunday, the day of resurrection, being the first day of the week for Christians. Basically, your year begins with liberation, and liberation is to frame how you understand your life. It is to be the hermeneutic or the lens or the tool through which you interpret everything. And one of the recurring motifs that will unfold in the book of Exodus is what will the Israelites prefer? Will they prefer to be liberated people? Or will they want to go back to slavery? And of course, that sounds like a, a completely ridiculous question. But if we keep reading, at some point, they're going to be saying, oh, we remember how good it was when we were slaves in Egypt, but you brought us out into the wilderness to die. 
And this question of what is it that we prefer more, liberation or slavery, my guess is that if we can really unpack this question together, that this is a question alive in your own heart. Uh, and if it's not something you're aware of, just ask yourself, is there any place in your life where you continue to get tripped up doing the same old things, right? None of us wakes up in the morning and says, you know, today, I think I'm going to make the same stupid mistakes I've made the last 10 years. I'm going to hurt people in the same traditional ways. And yet, inevitably, by the end of the day, many of us will have done just that. And there's something within the human heart that might prefer that slavery over the liberation that God says is to define our identity. So that's what God means when he says, this month is the first month that your year, your identity is all about liberation. And that liberation is going to be tied to each family taking a lamb, a lamb without blemish, a lamb without blemish who will be slaughtered, a lamb without blemish whose slaughter will result in blood, a lamb without blemish whose slaughter will result in blood that saves the people from a plague. And so as we approach Good Friday, I hope that you are picking up on Christological motifs. In the Gospel of John, for instance, whenever Jesus is walking and John the Baptist's disciples see him, John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in fact, one of the things that's really interesting about John's Gospel is that his chronology and timeline for Jesus's death is different from the synoptics, from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who have Jesus dying a day later. And John moves that up, not because John is mainly concerned with historical fact, but rather with spiritual truth. John wants Jesus crucified the same night the other lambs are being slaughtered for the feast of the Passover. Why? Because Jesus is the true Passover lamb without blemish whose slaughter will liberate the people. And so we have the prefiguring of the lamb of God here in Exodus 12. But for the purposes of our story, each family has a real lamb. Uh, and if it's a small household, people can share a lamb. And the liberation of the people and being saved from judgment is going to be tied to this lamb's death and to the blood of the lamb being placed on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they share the meal. Uh, with this meal of the lamb, you're going to notice there's bread and there's a very important adjective in front of the word bread that takes on deep importance in this chapter, and that adjective is unleavened. This is not any bread. This is bread without yeast, unleavened bread. And we'll talk a little bit more about unleavened bread at the end of my unpacking of Exodus 12. So I'm going to put a pin in that just for a moment. Um, this is about judgment. God is striking down the gods of Egypt. That's what it says in verse 12. And I think it's really important to understand the biblical worldview that this is not a real battle. This is not between heavyweight number one and heavyweight number two. And so the judgment on the gods of Egypt is not that they're real gods who need to be defeated. 
but rather what Yahweh or the Lord will do is expose these gods as impotent, unreal, and having no power. I think that many Psalms capture this biblical worldview. A good one for your reference is Psalm 115, which says, our God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. Their idols are the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. Those who make them are like them, namely lacking in reality. And so this judgment on the gods of Egypt is going to be exposing them to have no power. And ultimately, what our liberation does, what God's work in our life always does is expose our idols as not really having any power or reality. Remember, in the Christian worldview, an idol is not a bad or evil thing. It is a good thing that we have elevated above God's place in our life. Um, you know, I like how C.S. Lewis once put it. He said, you can't love your money too much. You can't love your job too much. You can't love your reputation too much. You can only love these things too much in proportion to your love for God. And so part of this liberating work, whether historically speaking, with the Israelites leaving Egypt or in our life, a part of God's liberating work is always to pass judgment on the idols, which is another way of saying revealing them as having no power. In verse 14, God tells the people that this is a day of remembrance and that it's also a celebration. And so this should um, uh, evoke Eucharistic um, uh, Eucharistic images where the celebrant leads a remembrance of the final night of Jesus's life. We've talked a lot in this group about remembering being at the heart of both Hebrew and Christian piety. And that this remembering is not primarily an intellectual affair. It's not about having a bad memory and then just like remembering it the way you might remember to do a, a daily task, but that the remembering is done with the gut, it's done with the heart, it's done with the head, and it's done in community. And that the remembering can also be seen as re-membering a putting back together of the members of God's family. Because what has slavery done? It has fragmented the members of God's family. Uh, that's what slavery always does, whether it's real institutional slavery or the slavery of sin and addiction, right? We are torn apart. And so the remembering is the putting together of God's people. And that's going to be done through ritual and liturgical observance. Um, again, seven days of unleavened bread is going to be as part of this festival. And I want to highlight the five words in verse 15, remove leaven from your houses. In the New Testament, leaven became a quick stand-in for sin. Uh, Paul will talk about uh, the, the corrupting sin as leaven. And so the early church fathers saw, you know, verses like remove leaven from your houses, and they just ate that up as a figurative expression of the church being a place of, of purity 
uh, removing quarreling, backbiting, greed, right? Kind of getting all of that out of the house of God. Um, remove leaven from your houses became uh, one of the ways of, of speaking of that. And so by the time we get to verse 29, it's midnight and the Lord strikes down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And we're not going to really unpack this, but because it is Holy Week and because um, Good Friday is upon us and because we've already drawn some figurative connections between the lamb of Exodus 12 and the lamb of John's gospel, you know, you can think of the cross as judgment now falling on the firstborn of God, right? So ultimately, the last word of scripture is not that our firstborn is judged, but that God's firstborn is judged with us, for us, in our place. So you can kind of do a little creative prayer and thought if you want to fast forward to Good Friday. But because we're in the book of Exodus and we can't fully fast forward, the ones judged are the firstborn of the Egyptians. And this is really bad. It's traumatic. It's the final straw. And so basically Pharaoh says, get out of here right? Take your flocks, take your herds, and go. And then he says, and bring a blessing on me also, verse 32. And so what is this about? Well, Pharaoh is now desperate, and he knows that Yahweh is the real God, and that he is not, and that he is in need of intercession. He knows that God is more powerful than he is. And so he's basically saying, intercede for me. And so the Egyptians then follow suit, and they tell the people to get out of there as quickly as they can. Um, this is that familiar line about the Israelites finding favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and we've had some funny conversations about how eager the Egyptians were to part ways with their silver and gold and what it meant to find favor. Um, I think the weight of the evidence here is that they just wanted them out of their country, and they saw the Lord's mighty deeds and so they parted ways with their silver and gold. However, it is possible that the hearts of the Egyptians were happy uh, to part ways with their things um, to serve God's people. I guess we'll never know. But they plundered the Egyptians. And that's part of the restitution, right? For the last 430 years, all this silver and gold has been made at their expense, and so what's kind of happening here is a real restitution. They're finally being compensated for their work, right? Because all this wealth was accumulated on the backs of the Israelite slaves. And so off they go, about 600,000 men, plus children, plus women. Robert Alter puts the total at 2 million, uh, whether you consider that historical fact or symbolic um, uh, representation of truth, because remember, um, the obsession with fact is a modern Western phenomenon. The obsession with fact is equivalent to truth. And so there are certain things that I think we have to say are factual. We can't make everything into a symbol, but 
the reason I'm, 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 this is kind of the bone I pick when I read the Old Testament is because if the only understanding we have of truth is historical fact, it's going to lead to a very impoverished reading of texts like this. So 2 million people could be a fact, could be a symbol. You can choose whatever you want, um, but that's the number that Exodus says is moving out. And they go into the desert, having not made any provisions for themselves, verse 39. And that's a really key detail, right? They don't have time to plan. They have to go out into the wilderness, trust God, and they can't make provisions for themselves. Jesus says something very similar to the apostles before he sends them out on a mission. Uh, Take no provisions for yourselves are his exact words. So there's something about the liberation experience that's tied to learning to trust God for our provisions. Um, As we bring an end to chapter 12, there is a very important note on circumcision. And I overlooked a really important comment in verse 22, where um, Moses tells the elders to take the hyssop, dip it in the blood that's in the basin and touch the doorpost with the blood. This verb translated touch is the exact same verb used in Exodus 4.25 when Zipporah touches the blood of circumcision on Moses's feet. And so whenever we read this bridegroom of blood story, it it sounded so odd and strange. And what we're discovering is it's actually the hermeneutical key to understanding so much of the book of Exodus, that circumcision is a substitute for judgment, that it's one of the ritual substitutes for judgments, that the touching of the blood in Exodus 4.25 is meant to mirror the touching of the doorposts in Exodus 12.22. And I say that because in verse 43, uh, no one gets to eat of this meal unless they have been circumcised. A foreigner can eat it. I'm sorry, a foreigner cannot eat it unless they're a slave who's been purchased and has been circumcised. And so to share in this meal, um, the covenant mark of like escaping judgment through circumcision is going to be a big, big piece of it. And then in verse 49, we're told that there's only going to be one law for the people moving forward. Uh, A better translation of the word law, I mean, the Hebrew is Torah, means instruction. And the idea of there being one Torah uh, for all of God's people, I think, is a big theme of Scripture. Okay, last thing I want to say, then we'll dive in. What's the deal with unleavened bread? I mean, my goodness, you know, if the bread has leaven, if your house has leaven, you're out. So let's unpack this a bit. Um, In the Bible, I think unleavened bread is a symbol first of haste. Um, the Israelites didn't have time to, to wait around. And so part of the instruction around unleavened bread is to symbolize the haste with which we must respond to the call of God. And 
I think about the New Testament, for instance, the parable of the great banquet where many people are invited and everyone makes excuses. Or I think about someone coming up to Jesus and says, I want to follow you, but let me bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. You come follow me now. I think about Mark's use of the word immediately that he associates with discipleship. This idea of there's no time. You can't be like Pharaoh and say, you want the frogs gone tomorrow. The haste with which we are to say yes to the invitation and, and be obedient now, I think that's a symbol uh, of leaven. But I think that leaven is also symbolic of sin and a lack of leaven is a symbol of purity. Um, and why leaven became associated with sin, how that unfolded, how Paul picked that up, um, I, I'm not quite sure. I can't really trace that biblically, but we do know that, you know, we read Paul and we see leaven as symbolic of sin and an absence of leaven as a symbol for purity. And I think that there is a call to be pure, a call to remove certain things from our collective life, and all that is bound up with this symbol of leaven. Just to kind of put this into Jesus's mouth, right? Because Jesus had this story memorized. He had this chapter memorized. And it's interesting, he used the word leaven in a lot of different ways. So one example, Matthew 16 uh, when Jesus and his disciples were on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, uh, just after having put the Pharisees and Sadducees uh, in their place for desiring a sign, he told his disciples, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, and of course, we then have that blunder where Peter thinks that Jesus is mad for forgetting to buy bread, but that's a different story. But here, the leaven of the Pharisees is the teaching of the Pharisees. It's the corrupting agent of the Pharisees. It's the additive stuff that isn't necessary, right? So the leaven of the Pharisees is not really a good thing because leaven is, is a corrupting kind of spreading thing in this metaphor. But then, of course, we get to Luke's gospel and Jesus says, and to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And so here, the same way that leaven spreads slowly throughout the yeast, right, and, and, and allows the bread to rise, think about that metaphor of resurrection or the reality of resurrection, right? Uh, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to leaven working itself through a whole batch of dough. And if we think of leaven as a corrupting agency, we can even expand our imagination to say that the kingdom of God is to corrupt the powers and principalities of this world and to kind of spread throughout the land. And so this metaphor of leaven, we can play with in a lot of different ways. For the most part, it's used in scripture as a bad symbol of sin and corruption. But then, of course, Jesus turns it on its head and says, well, the kingdom of God kind of does corrupt. It'll corrupt your selfishness. It will ruin a society that worships itself. You know, so he kind of flips the metaphor on its head.